Welcome to, to Green Left Radio this morning. <laughs> and fun <laughs> and breakfast. Yes. A little bit of technical difficulty there, Dennis. <laughs> no, don't worry. Don't worry about it, Lonnie. Good morning, um, listeners. And we have a jam-packed program again today. Lots yeah. and lots and lots of news. Yes, 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 indeed. We'll start off with the big one that was, that was dropped earlier this week. The Panama Papers have been going... <laughs> like a bomb, isn't it? Indeed, a, a bomb. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> a bombshell that's uh, sent shockwaves right, uh, right, right around the world and has already brought down one government, one, one Western government in Iceland. I know, so yay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> We yes. should bring ours down because from what I understand, um, Turnbull's got a, a, an account in Cayman Islands. Oh, I yes. can't confirm it, but it's only rumours. That's the... Um, <laughs> Well, that's been around for a while, but uh, uh, they have um, uh, sort of as a bit of a bit of a background on uh, those who haven't heard the Panama paper, the, the so-called Panama Papers leak has been a the release of um, of uh, of a one tele of over one terabyte of the uh, data con- uh, um, containing information about over two hundred thousand companies and dozens of dozens of uh, world's uh, business figures and politicians who apparently have been stashing their cash in Panama for years in order to avoid paying taxes in their home countries. I know, they make among rules them. for other people, but they don't obey those rules, do yes, they? Yes, and, and among, among those uh, 200,000, there have so far, so far been over 800 uh, Australian companies named in the leaks. And guess what they're focusing on? Poor Mr. Putin, <laughs> as much as I don't yeah. support him, but that's yeah. disgusting. It's your country, Dennis. Yes. Say something. <laughs> yes, well, it's been, it was quite uh, bizarre, actually, to, um, when the papers were first released, to watch a lot of the Western liberal media uh, really go into an overdrive, trying to focus entirely on Putin's part. Uh, in the leaks, uh, which revealed that, revealed that basically some of his childhoods and close friends um, have um, uh, basically gained the preferential access to the, uh, to the tax havens in uh, in Panama, which is horrible, of course. The, the you know uh, put uh, put in certainly has a uh, a, a cast of uh, a, a cast of um, uh, big businesses and oligarchs around them, around, around themselves to keep him, uh, to keep himself in power, but going into overdrive, trying to portray uh, portray him as almost the sole suspect in Panama Papers, does not uh, speak well for the for for the for the media in the West, whether they be uh, the Guardian or the um, or any of the mainstream. In newspapers, yeah. I know it's a bit. It, it's about deja vu, like Cold War. You exactly. know, you focus on Russia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, you could say uh, you could say the old Russophobia is still. Uh, you know, the, it's the stench is still is still. You can still feel it in the air. But also the fact that they are trying to avoid um, uh, pinpointing and focusing all the Western. That's true. Corrupted but politicians and business yes, people. Yes, indeed. Uh, there have been there have been some real, some quite significant figures named in in the leaks. Uh, one of them has been the prime minister of Iceland, who who actually was actually forced to resign three days after it was oh discovered. Yeah, the people on the street weren't yeah. they fantastic? Yeah, it was tens of, tens of thousands of people uh, in the street in Reykjavik in Iceland. And for those for those who think that well, that doesn't sound like a revolutionary tide, well, oh God, yes Iceland Iceland has a population of about three hundred thousand. So imagine twenty about you know uh, ten to fifteen percent of people. 
in uh, in uh, you know gathering in a place like Melbourne, ten uh, percent of the po- whole country's population gathering in a place like uh, Melbourne or Sydney to bring down uh, Turnbull's government. That's exactly what you had. Is that all? Three hundred thousand? I thought more than that. Oh, somewhere around that, but it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a country with a small population there. But the good thing, the interesting thing, and a good thing, I suppose, is that it fifty percent of the politicians or parliamentarians are women. And it, that's and they, true. And they like put in Bolivia. That <laughs> that's right. And what they'd also do is, you know, like you know how it's happening. Uh, the the latest news, the what's it company Aria, that has um, gone into administration. They put bankers into jail for bad making bad choices in investment. That's uh, that that's happens here. That's exactly what Iceland did back in uh, back when the GFC uh, first year. They actually jailed their bankers rather than that's you know, what we uh, bailing do. them bailing them out. So yes. And the excuse they, were, they have a, they were just moving on to a little bit of local news, I guess. Yes. Is that you know the local um, government they look at these mm-hmm. guys and they say, uh, well they made some bad decisions and there was a big discussion about how they invested in coal. Mm-hmm. No, in steel, even though they knew the the um, price of steel was going down, and and yes. they continued to do it, and that was the biggest uh, single factor um, that has brought this, the company to where it is today. Mm-hmm. So they should jail these guys. Why? Why don't we do that? No, of course. Well, we don't have a. a <laughs> <sighs> Just a question. Uh, exactly. Well, we don't. <laughs> the problem is we don't have uh, one single unified social movement to do that, which is what. And this is exactly what we need to build. Yes. Uh, but just to finish off on the Panama uh, Panama Papers story, the the leak has not actually been uh, hasn't exactly been perfect, uh, so to speak, uh, as the papers haven't actually named any U.S. businessmen or politicians that have stashed their money yes. in, in Panama. Which Interesting. Has, which has been quite suspicious. And uh, more, moreover, moreover, uh, WikiLeaks has released a statement saying, uh, stating that the release of Panama Papers was actually targeting, was actually linked to the um, U.S. businessman George Soros, and was in fact the, the primary target of the papers was indeed Vladimir Putin mm. and the uh, and, and Russia. So uh, I think uh, I think we need to keep an eye out for. Uh, for what happens around there, but so far, so far, it's been uh, it's, uh, it's 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 been it's been uh, looking good good for, for good for the, for the people to bring down neoliberal governments. Well, the thing is, it exposes what the um, capitalist system does: mm-hmm. allows the rich, the one percent, to give whatever they want. And even even though they want to focus on Putin, the fact is, it's just. Um, a wrong strategy perhaps because exactly. they've just opened up the floodgates and yep. it ain't going to stop and WikiLeaks isn't going to stop yes. and there are people all around the world now busily looking for who else is involved exactly, exactly. so they, this is a wrong strategy at the wrong time particularly when Hillary Clinton to rule the world oh yes well <laughs> we don't know about that cause or Trump because <laughs> Bernie Bernie's been surging quite well I the, know but the, the, the super delegates are oh, we'll, 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 we'll see what they yeah. well it's a, it's a whole lot of discussion for uh, I know for, uh, I know but it's interesting yeah. like he's won seven out of the last eight states where yes, they've competed actually nine out of ten almost I think that's because what I, hear. To, uh, I think today or tomorrow it's um, New York that's going to be the big clash yes indeed and Bernie, Bernie, even though he's uh, representing Vermont, he's actually originally from the Bronx. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's from he's from um, Wisconsin, isn't he? No, no, no. He is from the Bronx. From New York. From uh, in New York, exactly. Yes, 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 yes. 
Anyway, now, uh, no, but now from now, uh, moving on from uh, rich, <laughs> too much rich, going on. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> moving on from the rich having um, having uh, 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 cash and tax havens to the rich taxing the poor, state <laughs> income taxes <laughs> and the new race to the bottom. Bottom. This is what Peter Boyle writes in Green Left Weekly. The as uh, the as the turn, as as Malcolm Turnbull has been proposing that states begin begin levying their own income taxes, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a a reverse of a double dip for the poor man, in uh, in in Australia. Uh, so we got the uh, as uh, as uh, Peter, Peter writes here. It's the Australian Financial Review reported on March 30th. Malcolm Turnbull has given the green light for the states and territories to levy their own income taxes to find health and other essential services over long term, setting the scene for as many as eight different tax rates across the Federation. Yeah, but that got dumped, though, at the Coag, remember? Well, yes. The state said, no, we're not doing it. Too hard. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it m- might have died down for the, for the moment, but, yeah. you know, so they said they thought the same would go through with, with the GST or with the... With work choices or any other neoliberal policy that the uh, federal government would would wish to pass, so yeah, they're struggling, aren't they? But um, yes. they they have got a drought of ideas, I guess. They really are against the wall, and the fact that you know Shorten has surged ahead, well not surged, but it's just according to the polls, if you don't believe all that nonsense, the fact is none of them are doing anything for the people. Exactly, that is the problem I have with all these strategies. They are always concerned about. Dollar signs, economy, you know, they say it's a job, but really, as you talked before, you know, the, the company, they're not interested in the workers who have lost their jobs. They just mention it as a sideline, but they don't have any um, concrete proposals like, why don't the workers take charge of the company? <laughs> you knew I was going to say that, didn't mm. you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a long-term solution, there, Ali. Uh, next, uh, next up... Um, in the sort of ongoing dispute between the uh, in the maritime industry, so the last Australian crewed ship has been cancelled. Uh. British Fidelity, the last Australian crewed oil tanker serving the Aust- Australian coast, has been removed from service by petroleum giant BP, and that's Liam Liam Cole's writing, uh, writing there. All right, so British Fidelity has transported petroleum from. Uh, Winana in South Australia to Devonport in Hobart in Tasmania. So, and the crew received a letter from the ship manager, ASP, stating that BP had terminated the contract for the British fidelity. So this came after the crew had raised objections to sailing to, Sing- to Singapore. And the Maritime Union of Australia crew of the two other vessels, the CSL Melbourne and MV Portland, were also, for- were, as you know, uh, were forcibly removed by the Australian Federal Police and security guards for refusing to sail their vessels overseas to be replaced. Yet another case in, in a long list of um, uh, well, at- attempts, attempts by the mari- by the maritime industry to well not just get get, uh, get rid of the Australian jobs uh, on vessels, but really try to. Uh, try their hand at, co- at cost cutting by exporting foreign foreign workers. Next up, the uh, a bit of a, a, a bit of a good news actually. So the police have dropped charges against CFMU organizer Kerry Smith. Uh, writes here in the Green Left Weekly. Charges of assault against CF Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union organizer Justin Steele have been dropped by Queensland Police after the complaint against him was withdrawn. And this is the fifth time a construction union official has been has had criminal charges made by the Royal Commission. 
uh, task force, which have been uh, dropped. So this uh, so far it brings down uh, brings the total number of uh, arrests, uh, well, uh, uh, total number of actual guilty arrests of the Royal Commission to just under two. What is, this is what I believe. After 63 million dollars of taxpayer money has been wasted on a witch hunt designed to demonize the most militant organized workers' organizations in this country. And the CFMU's lawyers, uh, Luke Tiley, said, This is another example of inappropriate use of police resources to regulate the conduct of industrial relations. It is the second time in as many months that the TURC police task force has uh, has had to discontinue charges against officials of our clients, the Queensland branch of the CFMEU. Yes, we're coming up to the first interview. So excellent, excellent. If you so want to round up. Yes, um, yes, indeed. We'll just, we'll, we'll, so we'll just round, round up this, uh, this part, this section. part, of, uh, part of the news. Thanks, we'll come, back, we'll come back to the news straight up. Okay, we have uh, Professor Rob Moody, who is a professor at Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at Melbourne University. And we're going to discuss health, um, preventative health, really. There was an article in the Melbourne Journal, Medical Journal of Australia in relation to that. So we were going to discuss this paper that um, has pointed to the lack of preventative health in Australia. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. Uh, Thank you so much for... um, be up this early in the morning really, to talk yeah. to us. <laughs> it's always a challenge yeah. for most people. Now, the the article um, in the Medical Journal of Australia is interesting because this issue has been bubbling away for a long time, and this article actually pinpoints some fundamental issues. Um, I'm wondering if you want to say, sort of briefly say what you this article what actually. We're on about. Yeah, yeah. Sure. sure. Look, um, uh, I was interested to do this with some colleagues, Jane. Martin and Penny Tolhurst because um, <clears throat> about um, seven years ago I chaired the National Preventative Health Task Force when um, Nicola Roxon was the health minister and she basically asked us to look at well, what could Australia do to reduce the burden of premature death and disability from, uh, from obesity, from tobacco and from the harmful use of alcohol. So we said yes we did that, it took us a year. We um, did an enormous amount of work. Um, we made a sort of major uh, plan for the for the country um, and in those three areas. And it's interesting now to review it, sort of seven years later. Um, and when we look at, say, your Australia report card, then we'd give what we've done in tobacco an A plus. Um, we were, you know, we we <clears throat> supported the introduction, in fact, promoted the introduction of plain packaging, of increasing the tax on tobacco, of um, doing a much better job in terms of um, providing cessation services, and, and you know, that's why Australia has one of the lowest rates of um, tobacco smoking across the globe, and and that has really helped us. You know, and the great achievement. Expectancy. Yeah, it's been terrific. On the other hand, when you look at the other areas of, of uh, uh, alcohol-related harm or healthy weight or uh, if you're looking at, you know, Levels of, of um, healthy eating, then we're not doing very well at all, and we won't, we won't, we don't think we'll get anywhere near the targets that uh, the country set in terms of um, healthy weight or um, certainly reducing harm from alcohol. So, 
we've reviewed these, we've reviewed these and one of the things we've come up found is that really Australia's investment in prevention is dwindling. It's certainly dwindling uh, compared to what we we used to invest and also compared to other countries. So in the long term, you know, that doesn't bode well for our health. And um, if you look at what's happened in the last 25 years, and the average man um, has put on about six and a half kilograms, the average woman's about 5.7 kilograms. So we're growing larger. Mm. Um, our diets aren't necessarily terribly healthy as a, as a nation. We're surrounded by saturation advertising, particularly to our kids. Um, and um, you know, our sporting heroes are major ambassadors of junk food, junk drinks and, uh, and alcohol. Yes, and, and, and I, I take the drift of your, your article. It's, it says yeah. uh, being accountable for prevention, but you've got a major hurdle in front of you, and in terms of action, you, you were part of the Australian, well, you're chair of the Na- Australian National Preventive mm-hmm. Health Agency. That was established in 2009, but they actually abolished it in 2014, didn't they? Yeah, well, yeah, and, and, um, and then uh, the government of the day took out $400 million uh, money that had been <clears throat> promised to the states for prevention. So, um, I mean, this is often something that governments will do by virtue of the pressure it has to invest in treatment because that's what, you know, we as, we as citizens often want. We, we want someone to provide the ambulance to get us to the hospital and the, and the hospital care. That's the most important things in our lives. This is why it is quite difficult for governments to invest in prevention. Of the effects of which you know are ten or twenty or thirty years down the um, you know down the track, but you know it's really important that our, our government actually does look ahead um, and does invest in, um, in in prevention. It's better to be the you know, the fence at the top of the hill, not just the ambulance at the bottom of the hill. But the problem is. Um Australia does not, um, per capita, compared to most other countries, mm. invest less in health in general. Well, invest in, invest in prevention. I mean, <coughs> our investment, you know, the, the sort of the, the bang that we get for our buck for our investment in health overall is pretty good, actually. Um, but the point is, you know, it shouldn't be just in treatment. Um, we have to be able to commit more, more brains, if you like, more more ingenuity as well as um, more resources uh, into into prevention as well. I mean, we're all very happy to say that prevention's an ounce of prevention with a pound of cure or, or whatever sort of adaptation of that phrase, but actually putting that into practice um, is not easy. It was interesting that they invest so much in immunization programs, for example, which is a solidly a preventative measure, and yet you have a whole strategy that is being um, misapplied with the focus on treatment as opposed to focus on prevention starting from childhood days, and uh, it, it's, it bode, doesn't bode well for the policymakers, does it? Well, I mean, it actually... Bodes very doesn't bode well for the um, for Australian citizens. I mean, um, you know, we have major problems now because of the fact that Australia is, uh, I think, fifth heaviest country in the world. And, yes. <laughs> uh, um, you know, this has major implications in terms of diabetes, in particular, mm. uh, type two diabetes, which they're now almost referring to as diabetes. 
um, because of the link between obesity and diabetes. And this puts, you know, at the individual level, an enormous strain on, on you know, hearts and blood vessels. Um, at the collective level, it puts an enormous strain on the healthcare system by virtue of you know, all the extra resources that need to be provided for someone uh, who has uh, who has diabetes that would otherwise be preventable if we managed to um, keep our weight, our collective weight down. Mm. The reason I mention the immunisation is because you've compared uh, death that's like from non-communicable diseases actually has yeah. overtaken uh, deaths from communicable diseases. Oh, why? I mean, it's you know, nine out of every ten deaths is due to a non-communicable disease. So that's uh, cancer or or lung disease or, or heart disease or, or diabetes. I mean, it's now the major killers. And also, I mean, we have to die of something, but this is the the major cause of preventable deaths, so or premature, premature deaths. So you know, there are people now who are dying much earlier than they, than, uh, than they would otherwise need to, or they're they're getting sick for a much longer period. So it's a question of how do we manage our diets, our exercise, um, the amount of alcohol we consume, and obviously the amount of tobacco we smoke. Um, you know, the better that we can manage that, uh, then the healthier we can be. And in particular, we're really concerned about um, Australia's children because they're now 20, well over a quarter of are either overweight or obese. Um, and we're seeing diabetes kick in at a, diabetes type 2 kick in at a much younger age than, than we have ever seen before. Mm. We didn't look at the age groups, but given that the population of Australia is now weighing heavily towards the retirees with the, the 50s children, sure. um, you know, coming into the 60s and 70s, it actually is going to go to crisis point if the suggestions you're making are not be, going to be taken up. Would you yeah, agree with that? Why exactly. I mean, that's why we're, we're um, constantly trying to make these, um, uh, bring the best evidence we can back to uh, back to policymakers and back to um, our politicians in particular. Because, I mean, there's actually very strong community support for initiatives like putting a tax on... Uh, uh, on sugary drinks, um, yes. on reducing the amount of saturation advertising that we give to our children, um, of putting effective labelling and uh, compulsory labelling on food, of you know, running major information social marketing campaigns about you know the harms of alcohol, the harms of of uh, poor diets. Yet it's fundamentally at the moment it's the the junk food, junk drink industry, and obviously the alcohol industries, whose lobbyists um, yes. are doing <laughs> a very effective job in undermining uh, sensible health uh, policies. I mean, fortunately, the tobacco lobbyists can no longer do that. They're just not nearly as effective as they were um, 20, 30 years ago, simply because the tide of, of community opinion, unfortunately, political opinion, is, is against them. Yeah, but, and uh, research. People yeah, like yourself okay. doing research has been very effective. Mm. So that's yeah. been very helpful. Um, just uh, to, to round up the interview, I'm just wondering, how do you think people can participate in this campaign, uh, like your, you know, to help and support uh, researchers who, who really can't do it alone? There has to be a lot more than just researchers lobbying the government. Sure. Sure. So sure. how well, do you... 
There are there are terrific groups that are, are around. I mean, there's, the, there's a group called the Parents Jury, um, and uh, Google Parents Jury, and you can find them. But any parents that are interested, this is really a, a parents group who are interested in in exactly these things about how we can make a, a much healthier environment for our kids. You can be very active at your local school, making sure that the you know, the canteen has healthy policies, that you know, physical activity is is being promoted, um, you know, day in day out at, at the school. Um, you, know, you can join in the walking school bus programs. I mean, there are a number of different ways of just doing things locally. The, the more we build local interest and local pressure to um, to create a healthier and, in many ways, safer environment, then the better for our kids and the better for all of us. Thank you very much, um, Rob. It's been very kind of you to talk to us this morning. Um, we will keep, keep tabs on this campaign and, and see what Good. we can do to publicise this issue. Good on you. Thank you very Thanks. much. Morning. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au Greenleft Radio is brought to you by the Greenleft Weekly Newspaper providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206 For new subscribers it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Welcome back to Friday Breakfast and Green Left Weekly. That was Professor Rob Moody who was very kind enough to wake up at this time of the morning. Maybe he's going to work, so I don't feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel bad. Oh, God, you know, I wake up at 5.30 to get to the studio. I yes, wonder how, how early all the other people get up. <laughs> ah. Although there are lots of cars on the, on the road this morning. So, oh, well, that's okay. You know, people do get up fairly early to avoid the jam. Especially doctors. <laughs> no, he's actually a professor. <laughs> I don't know how many papers it corrects, but anyway. Anyway. anyway moving okay, on. Yeah. moving on to more news. Well, moving, on, moving back, uh, back to news. And um, Save the Safe Schools Coalition. I is, know. Uh, Isn't that a uh, disgrace what they're doing to the campaign? Oh, no, no, it's been horrible. But there's been. Um, would, it's, uh, the Farida Iqbal has written an excellent uh, overview and analysis of the whole. Uh, of the whole situation here uh, in this in this weekly this week's edition of the Green Left Weekly. So she's saying, on a day that was supposed to be the National Day of Action Against Bullying, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced uh, a devast- devastating attack on the crucial anti-bullying campaign. So this was uh, just uh, just um, just over two weeks ago on March 18th. And the school, uh, yet now the Safe Schools Coalition is an alliance of 535 primary and secondary schools across the country, which aim to ensure safety to the LGBTI students. And this program was, this program, curiously enough, this program was actually began in 2014 under the Tony Abbott government. It has an engaged, has already uh, so far engaged more than 13,000 education professionals. There are lots and lots of um, schools, parents who are very keen to implement this program, and yes. it's not reflected in the way you know. You, you find that the, the mainstream media gives mm-hmm. more publicity to people like I think it's Christensen, is it exactly. from Queensland? And more, uh, well, uh, well, more on the point, the the Australian has uh, yes. uh, sort of the key Labour, Liberal Party politicians um, uh, are the ones that came behind the. Uh, 
the Australian Christian lobby and, and his campaign oh, against God. the safe schools. Yes. Um, you have the, you know, the, the, the liberal backbenchers that she noticed, uh, as, as, as you said, um, well, yeah, George Christensen and Cor- Cory Bernardi have really been leading the charge against, uh, uh, against the anti-bullying campaign and petitioning the government to suspend the funding uh, while the full par- parliamentary inquiry is being conducted. And University of Western Australia professor Bill Lowden conducted the review and could not find any major problems with safe schools. You know, ignoring Lawton's expert opinion, Turnbull threw a generation of LGBTI youth under the bus to maintain peace within the Liberal Party, not even a month after he took selfies with, uh, with, the, with the LGBTI community at Sydney Mardi Gras. It's all an act, isn't it? It's, it's all a performance. You know, uh, Malcolm Turnbull actually now reminds me of Vladimir Putin. You know? <laughs> Ooh, Dennis! <laughs> That's right. Well, it's right. Yeah, no, You're attacking, you, attacking your homeland. It's one of those rare moments when I, uh, one of those very rare moments where when I see an overlap between the two. So both of, both of them are using opportunist homophobic actions yes, to yes. prop up their own support among the conservative yeah. uh, lobbies and sections of the population. Yeah, it's it's so sad that these people lack the basic essence of humanity. They really do. The fact that in, I I have met. I've got lots of friends, I'm, I, and I, I mix with a lot of people who are uh, gay or transgender or whatever it is. I just came up from Thailand, and there are heaps of transgender uh, people out there. I, you know, sat down and had a chat to. But what I don't understand is why they cannot accept that they are people. I just mm. don't get it. And I, and I, I, I know I work because I work with with uh, children and, and parents and so on. I, I've dealt with parents like um, same-sex parents, whether it's male or female. I, I also pick up that a lot of them suffer uh, psychologically because they are rejected by the society because they are the minority. They are the ones who are so-called not normal. So you always right. see a reflection of that coming through. Yes. Uh, not, of course, not all of them. There's, there's a reasonably high number, I'd say. Mm. And yet, they don't recognize that children, if adults can suffer mental health issues, um, how do the children feel? And then most kids are groomed, you know, male, female household. Mm-hmm. And when they co- go to school and they see that this child is a product of something different, it's a different social environment, family environment, there's no tolerance. And this, this is what the program is trying to teach these kids, be tolerant, be exactly. broad-minded. Exactly. But uh, more importantly, more importantly is um, sort of the, the, uh, the people who I would call crusaders who are going against, oh, this, God, uh, yeah. who are going against this program, they, what, they're really, uh, what they're really doing is that they're actually entrenching the discrimination and oppression that the LGBTI community mm. faces uh, mm. here in Australia. Because exactly. this, you know, the... Um, uh, you know, the the bullying, the discrimination, and the other kinds of uh, other other kind of psychological and physical harm that uh, LGBTI kids face in school that would carry on mm. to the you know into, into adulthood. Always does. That's right. um, so 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 going against safe schools program doesn't sort of just uh, entrench discrimination, but it's. Uh, it greatly increases the chance, uh, you know, uh, the level of mental uh, mental illness, and you That's know, right. and quite possibly the, uh, uh, the number of suicides. Yes, on, they're uh, so in, sad. In the future, among not not just among the LGBTI kids now, but uh, as I said, uh, in the, in the future. Mm. 
Thankfully, though. Thankfully. Another preventative measure exactly. that you talked about, Precisely. health prevention. <laughs> and, men, and mental health, I feel like, really doesn't get mentioned. Yes, much, they always put that in the too hard basket. Exactly, especially especially among the um, the within the LGBTI community. There. That's right. Uh, thankfully, though, thankfully though, like, there have been some major national nationwide rallies uh, mm. to support safe schools. Um, and we certainly, and we um, on the Green Left Radio have interviewed Rod. Uh, That's right. Um, sorry, sorry, Ros Ward. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, just 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 the other week, um, who has been leading the charge against uh, the uh, the shutting down of safe schools. Yeah, I also interviewed the CEO of Safe Schools of Victoria mm-hmm. on my other programs, so Holiday Breakfast. So it was, you know, we were covering it pretty well, which is. Mm. I tell you, it's really warranted, given the attacks they're suffering. Exactly, exactly. Uh, in Victoria, though, there's the, uh, the one, uh, what, another piece of good news has been that the state government, the state la- labor government, has um, yes. has, pro- uh, has made it clear that they will keep the funding to the safe schools no matter what happens. And also they, they refuse to implement the changes yes. that were recommended by the federal government exactly. under pressure from the, right, the extreme right wing. Exactly. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, so now, uh, moving on from the from the s- from saving sa- safe schools to saving our climate. Oh God! Big, big, Trent, big. Yes, yes. Well, uh, Trent Hawkins here uh, writes uh, writes here. Turnbull's climate hoodwink. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced on March 23rd a new clean energy innovation fund with one billion dollars in funding over ten years. One billion over ten years. I'll say it again. Prime Minister's media release explicitly mentioned that it could be used to fund projects such as a large-scale solar facility with storage in Port Augusta. So given the uh, the years of groundwork by community and groups like Australia Youth Climate Coalition for a baseload solar power station in Port Augusta, this definitely sounded like a win for the climate movement. Um, We need to compare this with the... uh, with the approvals for new mines uh, <laughs> taking place across the country, such as yes. the Shinua mine in Queensland. So yes, the Adani mine. Oh, mm. and he's Indian, and th- this is my country now. My, you know, oh <laughs> it's global. It's global. Oh, drives me insane. It's, glo- <laughs> it's a global. It has to be global movement, Valley. Yes, I agree. Russia and India. From Moscow to Dubai, Chennai, to, to Chennai to Melbourne. Melbourne. Um, the establishment and well, sort of a, more on the point there. The establishment of the um, uh, of the new fund was uh, was actually really meant to uh, defund the Australian, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which um, uh, where uh, you know, Giles Parkinson reported in the Renew Economy Arena, or, yeah, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Uh, its grant-based funding strategy will be replaced by innovative finance, such as debt and equity funding, effectively mm. lending money and buying shares in investments. So that, that's that's basically where the uh, the one billion dollars would go for the so-called state uh, funding. It's more gambling, like, in other words. Well, it's buying stock. shares and, and stocks. Well, it's not just gambling, but it's uh, it's once again an example of of, of government subsidy for private business. That's so right. For, for private corporations to do something which can uh, to, to fix a problem which cannot be solved by free market. We know that hundreds yeah. of you know the, what 
the, the, the dishonesty about news, mainstream uh, media and the way they allow the politicians to get away with or you can privatize it, which means it will work better. But they never talk about the thousands of businesses that actually fail. They only talk about oh, private, privatizing it will solve the problem. It never solves the problem. It makes it ten times worse. They come back ten years down the track and they say, oh, we're in financial crisis. We're going to administration like this company we talked about before. Exactly. Can you give us some money? Taxpayers always subsidizing private companies. So how is private enterprise better than uh, a people-run well, program? It's worse. My it's, not meant, it's not meant to uh, uh, profit-run businesses for, uh, run, run, for, run for, pro, for profit. It's not meant to actually produce anything or solve anything. It's meant to, what do you say, fulfill the desires of shareholders. Mm. That's what it is. Yes, I keep, they keep saying that. From, uh, from privatizing the uh, climate action change to cutting, uh, to, to um, further uh, making life difficult for single parents. Oh. Uh, Laya Lazaro and Paz uh, Forgion, the comrades from South Australia, right here. Ahead of the federal election, talk of balancing the budgets, jobs and growth are at the center. Amid rising unemployment and job security, single parents continue to face both a job market unforgiving of parenting responsibilities and parenting payments that have been consistently attacked and eroded, framed by false narrative of providing incentives to return to work and funding necessary budget savings. And, you know, we are sort of, uh, the starkest reminder is, uh, remains Labour's decision by Julia Gillard back in 2012, you know, to implement cuts to single uh, parent payments there. And what a feminist but she was. Yes, <laughs> yes, the, the, perfect, the, the mascot of liberal feminism yes. in Australia. The National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children reported that single mother families are over, over, overrepresented in the areas of poverty, hardship, deprivation, violence, and inequality. The Australian Social Council of Social Service in 2015 re- report on inequality in Australia reported that one-third of sole parent families live in poverty. One Huge. Th- yeah, one-third uh, one, one live, uh, live in poverty, so... The, it's almost like, almost you could say, um, you know, a, a generation of a generation of kids who who um, a significant a significant number of whom would grow up and sort of having poverty as their uh, as a sort of everyday future. Future, and yeah, that's going to be the future, but it's going to be the, uh, the growing up in the within the everyday life. How do they justify this? You know, and then they complain, oh, there's there's uh, kids on the street, you know, twiddling thumb, not doing anything, unemployed. Uh, they are so, they're causing social disturbances. Uh, not necessarily true, but this is the sort of mm-hmm. scenario you're looking at. Yes. You create the problem, yes. and then you blame them for it. And the worst, uh, well, the worst part of the, it is 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 that the both both major parties have actually have really been dry, trying to outdo each other. On who can uh, who can cut more from uh, mm. who can take away who can take more away from the single parents? You know, it's uh, similar to the refugee uh, rights. Uh, we need to mobilize issue. like they're yeah. doing it in Iceland, I reckon. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, we need to do it against every single issue out there. Um, you know, despite so, uh, so uh, li- li- right, writes writes more here in uh, in the article. Despite the rhetoric, neither growing together nor shorten have formally committed to reversing the cuts. Labour has contributed to the passing of cuts due to, be, uh, due to begin in July, including axing the school kids bonus worth $430 a year for each primary school child 
and $856 a year for each secondary student. This is a significant support for those on low incomes. Yes, it is. And uh, as well as that, the income support bonus, a twice yearly payment of $111.50 to assist with rising living costs, such as utility bricks, is also being cast, uh, axed. And the large family, family supplement of $321 a year for families for their fourth and subsequent child also cut. So, so far, so far, let's see, uh, if, I, if, my, if my math doesn't fail me, if you have a, uh, basically, if you, if, you have a, if you have a primary school child, you are worse off by over, just uh, over $900. Yeah, if you put the $400, yeah. the school bonus, and That's then you right, put the um, dollars plus the, the twice yearly payment of uh, 800? Uh, uh, well, 111.50, uh, uh, so that's $220. 223, so it's 653 six hundred, six hundred and fifty-three plus three, three to one. Hmm. Uh, that gives you nine hundred and seventy-two dollars. It's a thousand dollars. It's a thousand, basically a thousand dollars. Which is huge. And this is, uh, as we're saying, this is on top of the rising uh, living costs. This is on top of wage cuts. On top of casualization and, insecu- and, ins- and insecurity. And the privatization of education, the privatization uh, of health, health, all that. All, all, them, all, all that piling on. It's, uh, gonna be, I mean, we already have homeless people on the street. Yes. This is going to make families now live on the street. Exactly. And it's going to be crushing. Yes. This is a system, a capitalist system, that is delivering taxpayers who actually pay to pay to pay this policy. Malcolm Turnbull gave himself a 10% wage rise very soon after he came into power. So it's okay for him to do that. He didn't need the money. He didn't. Does, does, mm. He doesn't even need that that wage. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he's a millionaire. He's one of the one percent. Exactly. He probably has a. Uh, you know, he's probably a, 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 a tax slush fund in Panama somewhere. That's what. That's what people are saying. I don't know yeah. how true it is, but anyway, supposedly came around. Whatever. Yes. But the thing is, this is a perspective. You've got. You've got a businessman, a millionaire businessman, running the country like a business. A totally capitalist model, and they don't care about people. They only care about money, and that's exactly. that's what you see here reflected exactly. in reality. Exactly. Um, just uh, just to uh, finish off the segment on the on, on latest news in Australia, the Subul writes here a wonderful piece about the uh, Australian Building uh, Construction Commission or the ABCC. Oh, a yes. trigger for a gun aimed at workers. You know, something they've been, sorry, <coughs> quite important to mention this, and as this is, well, not, not only has this been um, uh, one of the uh, coalition's longest attempts to uh, crack down on uh, organized independent militant unionism, yes. but now it seems to have become the trigger for the early election in, Ju- in, 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 uh, in early July. So in all the, uh, as, so Subul writes here, in all the media hype around Malcolm Turnbull's recalling of parliament in April and talk of a double dissolution election, it is easy to lose sight of the trigger, the ABCC bill. I, re- uh, I recently heard on ABC Radio National Commentator talking about the use of ABCC bill as the trigger. She said words to the effect that most people would be in favor of cleaning up construction unions as only 11% of workers are in unions now. She's actually incorrect. It's, 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 it's a bit higher than that. Higher than it's, that. It's higher. That's most I think it's 12 or 13. Most, no, well, well, it was 17. It's now 15. You're right. Not by much, but we are, we are in trouble on that front. But this is, you know, this <laughs> it's is, just a mistake, is, yeah. yeah. 
so he was considered to be a winner for for Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, the sort of the, the, the double dissolution trigger. As, as a trade unionist, uh, my whole working life, currently a proud construction, forestry, mining and energy union member and health and safety teacher, I can't believe that it would be a winner if people got to hear the truth. In all the vilification of the CFMEU, the characterization of them as thugs, standalone merchants and banded bikies, a real nature of what we do and who we are has been lost. Has it been forgotten that we are the people who build your houses, your public hospitals, schools, roads, bridges and high-rise buildings? In fact, the whole built environment was created by generations of construction workers who slogged their guts out in dangerous, exhausting conditions where the fatality rate is still the second highest in the country That's right. after the agricultural sector. Talk to any construction worker and they will tell you that without the union, there will be far more construction deaths and injuries. That's right. Absolutely. Um, it, it does, however, seem, despite such a vicious campaign, you know, the Royal Commission and the, and the ABCC bill, you know, despite such a, another round of such a vicious campaign against the construction, construction union, it does, feel, it does, however, feel like... Um, uh, Turnbull, Turnbull and the co are running out of steam on uh, on, t- on, on, on trying to pressure, pressure the workers. Now that they've called, they basically called the election. Mm. So they have. Well, have they called the election? I well, so, sorry, sorry. On 18th of April, parliaments yes, are yes. coming back, and yes, that yes. is going to be where this will be decided. decided. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's. Yeah. Everybody's really thinking, chance. yeah, it's yeah. going to happen. It's going to happen. But I have my doubts because there's a lot of um, negotiations going on, going on behind the scenes, and the Family First senator was trying to put together an alternative to this. Uh, ABCC thing because Senator Land said no we will have um, uh, ICAC but we'll have it across politicians businessmen, unions and the whole bloody lot, put the exactly, lot in yeah. But and he's gathering his team together as well so there's a lot of lobbying going on Yes. so who yes. knows what will happen yes and at uh, the same time Bill Shorten has uh, pressured there to be a, an ICAC into banks the Austral- that's in, right, that's, that's the included as well I think commission into, uh, in, into banks so it will be curious to see, to see what happens uh, at yeah I, I'm not um, that convinced there's going to be a double resolution because it's going to be uh, absolute chaos yes Absolutely. I mean, people are going to be, you know, totally thrown into this thing. You'll have a short run-up um, period. You also will have a short election campaign. And, uh, you know, there's no guarantees Malcolm Turnbull will get what he wants because the senators then uh, elected only have to get 7.7% of the votes. So if they went to a normal election, it'll be 14%. So he's really pushing his luck, exactly. to put it briefly. Anyway, anyway. You're listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And this is Friday Breakfast and Green Left Weekly Radio. In the studio, you have um, Dennis Rogovich. Rogachu. 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 I must get this right. Rogachu. He spells it funny, so it makes it very difficult to pronounce his name. <laughs> and Lalita Chalaya. Many people get my name wrong. I, I tell them Lalita. Yes. They say, oh, Melissa. I said, oh, where did oh, that come oh, from? Oh, does that, how does that even work? <laughs> I don't know. But that's what happened. No. But, okay. Well, moving well, on to international news. International news. Yes, indeed. Huge strikes erupted against anti-worker laws in France. Sounds There's, good. Oh, that was, yeah, that, that was the fantastic, some, some what, fantastic news from France from a change, well, for a change. Raoul Connolly writes here in Greenland Weekly. Hundreds of thousands of French workers and students join a general strike on March 31st 
against their government's attack on hard-won workers' rights, uh, the Morning Star said the next day. Protests erupted across France against proposed sweeping attacks on workers' rights, shutting down dozens of schools, transportation, and the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower has been shut down by workers. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the uh, legislation, which was to be debated next month, would allow 12-hour days, and in exceptional circumstances, employees could work up to 60 hours a week. Something that already happens in Australia, <laughs> but uh, on a daily basis, but in, a, but in France... This has led to, to uh, this has almost led to a revolutionary dress rehearsal. Annual leave entitlement, break time pay, and other workplace rights will also be up for debate. So both the employers and the Socialist Party government of President uh, Francois Hollande, the least popular in modern French history, claim the hated bill will encourage firms to take on more staff, with unemployment running at around 10%. Well, if if we if we have learned anything from uh, how how Greece, <laughs> Greece and also from uh, uh, from the uh, you know the the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage in the United in the States, US, yes, you know, uh, cutting down stuff, cutting down their wages, and destroying their working conditions. Just uh, it just drives workers into poverty. What reduces for trouble. exactly? What reduces unemployment or what gets rid gets rid of unemployment is social spending, high minimum high minimum wage, and strong uh, in a strong state investment into into schools, into uh, into infrastructure, into medicine, into a good uh, you know a stable social social security system, like they've done in Ecuador. Which, which has one of the lowest unemployment rates in South America. I know, and then we've got, I don't know, this is this sort of a touching base on local news. Uh, it, was, it was in yesterday's news, actually, this. The education debts for students, yes. 50,000 each is now going to have to be cancelled because there's, they've got no hope of collecting it because nobody, so many of them don't earn the cut-off income of 54000 You exactly. have to earn 54000 before you repay your debt. Oh, well, uh, well actually, they, they actually they, uh, they decided to make a job easier for the government to collect uh, the money since they have now dropped the threshold from 52000 to 40000 Oh, that's nice of them. Yes, yes, yes. So it will be, uh, it's poverty make, wages. Exactly, anyway, exactly. Keep going. What's happening else? Other, uh, more on the news of, uh, from around the world. In the United States, Chicago teachers strike a, one, uh, a massive, demonstra- uh, massive demonstration. So the teachers' union staged a one-day strike on April 1st in a bid to get lawmakers to adequately fund education and other programs in the United States' third largest school district. And about 27,000 teachers staged a walkout. Nearly 400,000 students who had the option of spending the day at one of the or more of the 250 contingency sites in Chicago public schools have opened uh, opened the churches, libraries, school buildings, and missed a normal day of uh, of lessons. So 400,000 students decided to support the strike in uh, over there in Chicago in the public uh, school system. The and uh, Chicago, Chicago has traditionally been a real sort of hotspot for, um, uh, for not just workers' union, workers. Well, it uh, is a family uh, working class city too, exactly, isn't it? Exactly, like, and Chicago teachers' union especially yes. has been um, has been one of the most uh, one of the most militant and one of the most hmm. one of the best organized public sec- uh, public sector unions um, in the United States. So this is this is definitely um, de- uh, de- definitely uh, good good to see sort of. A, Especially when we are right in the middle of a um, 
Yeah. Such an interesting uh, primary uh, primary I know, season. But I think these these things are happening partly because Bernie Sanders is, is inspiring people, empowering them. So you have the power, you can do something. Yes. And I think that's that's got to be noted. Exactly. And it has been noted, especially especially it has been it has been particularly noted among the millennial generation. And explain yeah. that. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, Angus. Well, actually, I'd let I'd let Angus uh, McAllen explain. Okay. Expl- explain From Green Left Weekly. Yes. Explain, explain it here in the article. The kids are all right. Millennial politics, democratic, democratic socialism, and Bernie Sanders. Across the United States, young people are pouring into the polling booths. The contest is not the presidential election. It is still some months away. Instead, they are lining up to vote in the primaries for the Democratic Party. In particular, they are turning up to vote for an old Jewish radical from the Bronx. <laughs> Bernie, Bernie has been uh, seen a grandfather. A Exactly, exactly. Uh, Bernie Sanders has seen a wave of support lift him from an outsider to a real contender, although still an underdog in the race to be a Democratic nominee for President of the United States. So, but who are the new kids um, on the block who are backing him? It is hard to define exactly who are the millennials, and indeed, they may not simply be a set of time brackets, but rather a general sentiment attached to a layer of young people. And Angus writes here, he is a, uh, I am a millennial, born in 1995. So when asking what characteristics are in the spirit of our experiences, it is important to get past the discussions of smartphones and internet use, which tend to dominate mainstream discussion. There is in fact a multiplicity of factors shaping young people's consciousness and helping to explain why, why people like us support the politics of Sanders. First, millennials are socially progressive on issues such as gender and sexuality, drug legalization, reproductive rights and secularism. Young people are overwhelmingly more open, tolerant and accepting. Second, the demographic shifts are making this generation more multi-ethnic and less white hegemonic than previously. Migration of increasingly diverse cultures and shifts in birth rates between communities are leading to a democrat- demographic shift, which will mean pe- white people will be a minority in New Year's by mid-century. And third, the economic conditions of young people has changed. This is perhaps the most important change reflected in the Sanders campaign. Young people are entering a labor market that is still suffering the convul- convulsions of the 2008 economic crash. The capitalism they are experiencing is a leaner, meaner beast than their parents experienced. In general, they are concentrated in service industries, particularly hospitality and retail. We uh, we as young people are poorly paid, poorly unionized, and often suffer serious violations of our workers' rights. So all in all, all in all, all in all, all this is is the the real driving factor that attracts millennials to Bernie Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, Bernie has been the only major candidates in the last decades. Many really, decades. Many decades <laughs> who has actually actually uh, tapped into every single issue that millennials uh, feel uh, uh, compassionate about. The millennials feel like this is, this is what needs to be done. Mm. I, 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 I was reading this article yesterday, you know, about um, who cares about the white working class in the U.S.? And I think Bernie Sanders has tapped into that. And they, in that article, they talk about how the fascist movements around yeah. the world tap into this uh, 
white working class exactly. who feel threatened with multiculturalism and they see they're always competing with other other workers whether they are from you know china or from from india or yeah. anywhere else so it, it they don't feel um isolated from the issues so he's including yeah. them in all issues so it's, it's, he's running a very inclusive campaign exactly, exactly. um and it's i think the same sorry uh, just just to finish up i'm thinking Coleman is also doing the same thing exactly. in England. Exactly. Yeah. But what's important is that uh, both Corbyn and Sanders, they're actually offering a proper alternative yes. to, the, uh, to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the mainstream, to the, to the neoliberal-dominated mainstream. And this has, been, this, is actu- this has actually been the, um, this has actually been the, the reason for, uh, for the rise in the you know the far right and, and, and fascist movements right across right across the, right across the world the Austra- you know Australia the UK Trump Trump in the United States and uh, you know the far right movements uh, in Europe the, the the reason for that is because the the old um, sort of third wave social democratic parties uh, no longer offering the alternative they're seen as being part of this new extreme center uh, so to, so, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, so they, so they, they, so they, they, they're basically seen as being, you know, of this uh, sort of the political elite class that occupies the mainstream stage in in, in countries like the UK, like Australia, like the United States, uh, like Ireland, like uh, like um, like Germany uh, and others. Corbyn and Sanders, on the on the other hand, have uh, I, I, I actually implementing a breakthrough in that by offering a genuine. Uh, alter, uh, offering a genuine alternative to um, both uh, their respective peers in Labour and Democratic parties, but also an alternative to fa- to fascism. And uh, <clears throat> if the uh, if we ever see uh, if we ever if if we ever, if we ever actually see a um, um, a, vict- a victory by Sanders or by uh, Ober Coburn. This would, this could be, this could, this could uh, uh, signify a, a real, a li- real turn back. You know, a new, a new sort of, uh, a, you know, uh, pink or red tide that could, that could finally, <laughs> hit, could, could finally hit the shores of the United States and uh, and West and Western Europe. Yes, I mean, example internationally. Exactly. Now, on that note, we are going to go to a very quick announcement, and then Professor Minas is on the line, and we shall move to the interview, and, and we'll talk about refugees and Peter Dutton, which is going to be interesting. Good morning, Professor Harry Minas. Welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll let you explain what you actually do at Melbourne University. It might be easier. I do a couple of things. I'm head of what's called the Global and Cultural Mental Health Unit, which is part of the School of uh, Population and Global Health. And I'm also head of the Melbourne Refugee Studies Program. Mm. Perfectly uh, postured to talk about the refugee issues um, in Australia. That's Well, in Europe as well, really. But we're focusing on Australia, I guess. Um, uh, yes, we are focusing on Australia. <laughs> yes. Now, I'm just wondering if you could um, talk to the, the, the um, article in um, The Age. Peter Dutton vows that children released from detention are still bound for Nauru. What, what's going on there? Well, this is, I think, the latest in, a, in a, a, a long saga now about how Australia deals with asylum seekers. Uh, this has been going on now for more than 15 or 20 years. Yes. 
um, the, the, the situation globally has become much more complex during that period. And I think what the government um, is saying is that they have a very firm policy around uh, how uh, people arriving by boat will be dealt with, asylum seekers arriving by boat. Um, both the government and the opposition are now in agreement that the Manus Island and the, sorry, the Manus and the Nauru arrangements uh, are the way to deal with the problem of people smuggling and the dangers that uh, asylum seekers expose themselves to. And so we have a situation now, we have bipartisan policy um, that is very clear that, that this is the way that Australia will deal with this aspect um, of asylum seekers. And Amnesty International, sorry. We Just recently had a High Court decision that that, that decided that, that uh, sending people back to Nauru, the, the people involved who came for primary, primarily medical reasons, was legal. Mm. I was just going to say, Amnesty International declares um, Australia's policy on refugees draconian. And there's also a question of Australia breaching the Human Rights Convention, the UN Human Rights Convention and the Refugee Convention. Um, how do you explain this? Well, there, there have been very clear statements from Amnesty, uh, from the, uh, uh, the Human Rights Council representatives, uh, from UNHCR about the treatment of asylum seekers in detention centres. There has been um, also uh, a conclusion drawn uh, by the Special Rapporteur on torture. So there's been a lot of very uh, clear and negative comment by international organisations that the way that Australia is treating asylum seekers uh, as part of the immigration detention program is not consistent with Australia's international obligations. Mm. That's uh, been developing <coughs> over quite a number of years. Mm. So in... in <coughs> Excuse me. Um, as someone who deals with mental health, I'm wondering if you give us some insight into the mental health for refugees uh, or of refugees, really, at this stage. Well, the, the, there is no longer any question that uh, prolonged detention, and particularly detention in circumstances such as those on Nauru and Manus Island, does a lot of damage to the mental health of uh, uh, asylum seekers, those who are detained. Um, there was uh, initially some debate about this, but I think there is no longer any, any discussion to be had. Long-term detention does serious mental health harm to a very large number of people, and it may well be that that harm uh, will be very long-term. Yeah, it, it's a very um, rigid, um, non-penetrable position that the government has taken. And I'm just wondering... Where to from here? It, it's frustrating to listen to this uh, discussed over and over and over again, people mobilizing against it. And in fact, the uh, 70 children who, or babies and children who have been released from the mainland immigration detention will still be sent to Nauru. And although uh, uh, Peter Dutton says that, well, they won't go into detention centers, but they will go into another community facility, which is described as a garrison by workers there. It, it just seems that Australia is absolutely determined 
not allow any refugees who come by board into Australia. So there's an there's a incredible nexus there. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Given that we, we, we now have a very clear bipartisan position on this, I think um, there, there are a couple of things. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about regional arrangements, and I think everybody agrees that it is essential to set up genuinely cooperative regional arrangements to deal more effectively with the asylum seeker flows in this part of the world. Um, the, the kinds of arrangements that have been made so far um, with resettlement in Papua New Guinea and Cambodia are clearly failing. Uh, and I think part of the reason is that the, the discussions that we're having with uh, our neighbours in the region are not genuinely cooperative. I think there is a sense um, that Australia is pushing its problems onto other countries rather than trying to work out how we can genuinely cooperate to deal with what is a, a, a global and an increasing, uh, increasingly complex situation of people moving for a whole variety of reasons. So one thing that needs to happen is that those efforts um, need to be accelerated and I think the the approach that's being taken um, I think the character of that approach needs needs to change so that we're saying, look, Australia is one country, there are many others in the region that could be part of a regional arrangement and that needs to be genuinely mutually respectful and cooperative. That's one issue. Um, I think the, the, uh, the, the quality of the public discussion about what we should be doing, I don't think, is very good. What, what's happened over the past 10 or 15 years is that the population has been kind of rigidly divided into those who are focusing entirely on the rights of, of asylum seekers and refugees, and then there's the other side, which is focusing entirely on notions around border protection and sovereignty, and we, we need to make the decisions. And there's really very little discussion between those two camps. And what generally what you get is uh, people on either side of that argument um, accusing the others of either being naive or of being cruel or of being something else rather than saying this is a genuinely complex global problem and we need to find solutions that are both practical and that uphold the rights of people who are, after all, very vulnerable. So there, there, there is an obligation of, of both government and opposition, I think, to more effectively um, communicate with the public about what the issues really are and to generate a much more sophisticated discussion than what we've had so far. There are some other things that can be done. I think um, Australia is a, is a rich country. It could be taking a larger number of refugees so that our, our humanitarian programs could, could become a bigger component of our overall immigration program. That would take some of the pressure off um, the, the, you know, the problems that are being faced in Indonesia and elsewhere. Uh, we could be doing a lot more to support UNHCR in its work. Um, UNHCR is seriously underfunded. Um, it has real difficulty in 
actually making the sorts of assessments and providing the sorts of assistance that are needed to people who are in transit or, or in third countries. The other thing that I think we could be doing is that we could be taking a much more active role in both uh, countries of origin and in transit countries in supporting what's happening there. What we're doing instead is that we've gradually been cutting our aid budget rather than increasing it during this time, which it would, in my view, be the, the more responsible and sensible thing to do. So I think there's a, there's a kind of a whole package of measures that needs to be taken and we should be engaged um, with the international community, particularly with UNHCR, in terms of finding more durable long-term solutions to what is a very complex and, and growing problem. Mm. And it doesn't help that Australia is giving advice to Europe to do the same to the refugees there, does it? Well, Europe is moving in the same direction as we see in recent times. Yeah. Um, the, the, the approach in Europe um, is proving to be very chaotic. I think they're, they're facing the same kinds of um, you know, conceptual problems about how do we as a union respond to this issue with a lot of internal division within Europe. So it's very difficult to get a common position within Europe. Um, it's very difficult to get uh, see and some of the you know some of the discussion at the moment globally is around burden sharing, more appropriate burden sharing. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. This should not be seen as a burden. It should be seen as a global responsibility. And so I think individual nations ought to be much clearer about what is their responsibility, whether they've signed on to the convention or not. This is a big global problem. It can only be solved by genuine cooperation between countries and with a readiness um, of countries to say, look, each of us has a responsibility to, to respond to this in the most um, generous and humane way possible. And in the discussion, we, we don't have time to go into the, the reasons as to why we have such mass migration of people across the world, not just Australia. Uh, but we have to leave it there. Um, Harry, thank you so much for being available this time of the morning um, to 3 p.m. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye. That was Professor Harry Minas, who oh. is from Melbourne University. Yes. And quite, he's quite refreshing. Yes, interesting um, uh, solutions or strategies. Okay, Dennis, what have we got for another couple of news items and then we do the calendar? Well, just finishing off on our um, international news headlines. Uh, Over in Argentina, the the right-wing neoliberal government has been attempting to silence critics with a move to take the the well-known left-wing... a new station tell us who off air the government of Argentina is seeking to take um, um, uh, 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 take it off air in a move the broadcaster said on March 28th uh, uh, seems to amount to censorship Latin American social movements have already condemned the move by the South American nation's new right wing president Mauricio Macri Headquartered in Caracas and Venezuela Telesur was founded in 2005 with support from the governments of 
Venezuela, Cuba, Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Uruguay, and Argentina. It was set up to provide an alternative to the only existing Pan-American channel, CNN in Spanish, and support Latin American unity and integration. And so this has been a... Uh, this has really been sort of uh, the latest in the attempts by the Macri government in Argentina to uh, wind back the progress that's been made on, uh, for the past 12 years, first under the Nestor Kirchner government and then under the, uh, the progressive government of, of, Christina, of Christina Kirchner. And also we, uh, we have uh, other, um, other, notable ach- other notable achievements of Mauricio Macri have been the... Um, you know the uh, slashing of a well, or threatening to slash over 80,000 public service uh, sector jobs, devaluing the uh, the Argentinian the Argentinian peso, and and uh, get ready for this, increasing utility prices for up for as uh, for as much as 300 percent. Oh my goodness! Uh, in the country, utility prices by that uh, transport uh, transportation costs. Um, uh, uh, phone, uh, phone, phone costs, um, the price of um, uh, the, pr- the price of beef and other and, and bu- other basic goods, you know, uh, going through the roof in uh, in the country. While at the same time, uh, Mr. Macri ac- uh, is is actually uh, apparently apparently he he and his uh, brother have been named in the Panama Papers, <laughs> having <Sorry>. having. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it's so serious. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, uh, so Mauricio Macri and his brother apparently having over eight registered companies in wow. in, pa- in Panama to uh, stash the profits that they made, and Mauricio Macri ma- making uh, big money from uh, from his time as the president of the uh, Argentinian soccer club Boca Juniors. Um, there, so uh, interesting times. If so, uh, you know we've had we've had one right wing uh, government fall in Iceland. So are we can the are we likely to see a right a you know a three months old or four months old uh, right wing government in Argentina following in the same in the same in the same direction? Could it happen? Yes, well, can we can only hope. <laughs> we can only hope. We'll have to, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, we better uh, move on to announcements, eh? Yes, indeed. Okay, you want to read them or? Of course. Yep. So, well, actually, uh, this uh, the, 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 t- the, first, the very first announcement reads well with, the, uh, with another news item we, we actually had here, and that's, the, uh, that's Michael Moore's latest film, Where to Invade Next. And so in spite, in spite of the title, it actually has little to do with U.S. foreign policy. So in, in Where to Invade Next, the documentary filmmaker goes after social problems that continue up to plague the United States, like homelessness and lack of health care, and shows that the U.S. could learn a lot from the rest of the world. The film's premise is that Moore is invading other countries to steal good ideas and bring them back home. Well, this is certainly curious. Um, so, uh, Social Alliance uh, and Green Left Weekly will be holding a screening next Thursday, April 14th at 6.30 p.m., in Cinema Nova, so the uh, the provocative and hilarious comedy. Yes, those who want to book. Mo- by, hmm? Sorry, let's okay, try booking. Don't forget. Yes, it. yes, absolutely. Uh, so try. Uh, so online booking is essential. So um, uh, have, have a look at the Green Left Weekly website, Socialized website for the for the links to the try booking. Or they can uh, just go in and, and type uh, try booking into exactly. Google, and it'll take you there and just put. 
Mike Moore read says event and for yeah, follow the prompts. Next. So yeah. again, Thursday, April 14th, 6.30 p.m. at Cinema Nova. And until Saturday, April the 23rd, the 3CI is continuing to have its If People Powered a Radio exhibition, 40 Years of 3CR. So collaboration between Fitzroy's oldest community radio station, 3CR, and one of Fitzroy's oldest galleries and the studio complex, Gertrude Contemporary, uh, running exhibitions to celebrate the legacy of the community radio station, so, which has uh, brought, uh, brought uh, given the power to transmit the voices of Aboriginal people, of women, of workers, ethnic and LGBTIQ communities, people with disabilities, environmentalists, artists, and musicians. So, if you if, if you're down in Fitzroy one day or night, please pop along to the Gertrude Contemporary. May Day Forum is coming up. Uh, Thirty years since the ni- 1986 nurses' strike. So this will take place on Tuesday, May 3rd at 6:30. And among speakers are Green Left Radio's very own Lalita Chala, the um, Irene Bo- uh, Bolger, who was Bolger. The, Bolger, sorry, this who was the state secretary during the uh, uh, during the strike. strike, and Gwyneth Evans, who is the A N F Health and Safety Officer during the strike, and current, currently the Meat Industry Union Health and Safety Officer. So this will take place at Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Streets in the city and presented by Green Left Weekly. So, remember Tuesday, May 3rd, 6.30, May Day Forum. Okay, another couple. Um, there's a um, forum or rally, actually, on uh, the 28th of May. I know it's a bit ahead of time, but it is a uh, Moorland-specific one. Others are obviously uh, welcome to join in. It's a rally about no to racism. It will be on the 28th of May, 11 a.m. Coburg Library, which is um, the Victoria Street Mall. Um, those who go shopping to Coburg will know that. So that will be in, it's initiated by Sir Bolton, the Moorland councillor, endorsed by Victorian Traditional Owners Land Justice Group, Grandmothers Against Children in, det- in Detention, Bill's Branch, Cook Island Community Group, um, the Sudanese Cultural Forum, Didi Bahini Samaj, which is a great program, um, no, three, three triple Z great program, and then the Sudanese Community Party and Electoral Trades Union and Socialist Alliance. And people may have heard of the occupation of empty homes or houses owned by, what's that company? The, um, the, you know, the East West Link the East company. West, the, the East, yes, the now, it's, given the highest housing crisis, there are 25,000 homeless people on the waiting list, and there are 33,000 waiting for um, public housing. 80,000 houses are empty. Now, there's a community meeting on the 7th of April. Hang on, isn't that yesterday, wasn't it? So that's a bit late. But if uh, people want to contact this group, they don't, they, they don't give you a, um, a website, but I'm sure if you if you type in Melbourne Housing Crisis and go to the Bendigo Street um, venue, you'll find that the, there are people there who are occupying and the vacant homes. Uh, yes, and there's people meeting out there every day to support those people. Exactly. exactly. Last but not least is a TPP forum coming up. That's Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's on the 21st of April, 7 p.m which is a Thursday, Lower Melbourne Town Hall in Swanson Street. And we are running out of time. 
Do you have anything else to add, um, Dennis? Well, and uh, one last thing I'll forget is, of course, our Socialism of the 21st Century Conference coming up in Sydney from May, thir- May 13th to May 15th. And once again, booking is essential. We're going to have three days of um, fun. talks of, and <laughs> fun talks about um, organizing workers, workers, environmental and in, in indigenous struggles and, in, and solidarity right across the world with speakers coming from places like Chile, Canada, India, Pakistan, Philippines, Indo- um, uh, Malaysia and Many more, as long as uh, as, well, as well as uh, uh, sort of the activists and revolutionaries from Australia. So yes, and we've got Marihana and Michael Lewis, Michael Lewis all, all fantastic speakers exactly. and extremely respected left um, academics and activists. Really, Absolutely. okay. We need to round up the program. Thank you to Tennis. <laughs> Uh, Remind me how how to pronounce your uh, surname again. Pronounce as Rogachuk. Rogachuk. That's good. That's easy. Hopefully now you and thousands (coughs) of others. Yes, I must. You know, if I write it in Tamil, then I will not Rogachuk. See, then I'll never forget how to. how to pronounce it. Okay. Thank you, uh, Professor Robbie, uh, Rob Moody, who is from Melbourne University, and Professor Harry Minutes, also from um, Melbourne University. Both of them gave us some insight into health issues and refugee issues. And, of course, Green Love Weekly News by Tennis. And Lalia. Lalita. Got you. Okay. Now, um, we have uh, Beyond Zero program coming up next. Um Two minutes to go, so we are running on time, which is good. So I've got to work out how to put this in automatic. So we'll say goodbye to our listeners. And till we'll, see, we'll see. We'll see you on Friday morning next week. You will be here, and I will be in a fortnight. Okay, thank you for listening. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source it's of alternative information which aims to it's inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.